Welcome, everybody, to episode 11 of The Lift. I'm Linda LeBlanc. And I'm Tyra. And today we are so happy to be joined by our guest, Dr. Ellie Kazimi, our friend and colleague. Ellie is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Cal State Northridge. She actually founded the Masters of Science program there in ABA in 2010 and for a long time served as the program chair. She has applied interests in really supervision, practical training, conflict resolution, and she also does fantastic laboratory research on technology particularly uh, robotics and virtual or augmented reality. She's actually received several mentorship awards, including the ABAI Best Mentor Award, the Outstanding Faculty Award, the Outstanding Teaching Award, and the Outstanding Service Award. And she has a book that we absolutely love and have mentioned several times on this podcast on supervision and practicum and behavior analysis, a handbook for supervisees. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's absolutely such an honor. It's so wonderful to see you both. Thank you for inviting me. Ellie, you and I um, met several years ago, probably over a decade now, when you were just going to CSUN. And I've never been so happy that someone reached out to me, someone I never met before. Do you remember that? Yeah, I absolutely do. So tell, tell our listeners a little bit about how that happened and how we've remained connected for so long. Well, you know, I, um, I have to say it's, it's one of those things that um, makes me realize the importance of stepping outside of your comfort zone. I had such a girl crush on you and would get so nervous um, thinking about how much I admired the work that, that you do. And I think it was uh, at the time, so many, so many great uh, presentations on problem solving and you just tackled some of the most important issues that were going on in the field. And so I just worked myself into coming up and standing by and, and continuing to stand and talk with you, even though I wasn't quite sure, you know, if I was in the right place. And, and I just knew that I, I wanted to work with you and continue to learn from you. And, and you were very, very positive. It was at a conference when we first met, uh, but very quickly you reached out and were very, very helpful in, in asking me about personal life, my professional things and how can you be helpful? So it was a very quick, uh, I felt like I, I didn't need to do much more than just go out of my comfort zone a bit there. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And, you know, a, a big part of it is being brave enough to meet someone. And then, uh, you know, I think when there's a true mentoring relationship that doesn't come from some official channel, you meet someone, you like them, you see that they have a lot of good to do in the world and you want to be around that. And, you know, if possible, you want to help, you want to use whatever resources you have to see that person succeed. And so, um, it started off at a conference, but over the years, we've been able to spend time together, go shopping, <laughs> all the fun stuff that that friends and colleagues do. And that that's really a big part of 
what keeps our field connected and interesting. Absolutely. I I also, I have to say that it has a lot to do with your, your ability to make me feel so quickly welcome. Um, And I think that that's very important. It's something I remind myself every time someone comes up to introduce themselves to me. I, I think of how quickly you made me feel like that was the right move. That's Linda Southern charm coming out. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because we have a, a, a crush triangle because I felt the same way about you, Ellie. And Linda introduced us at a dinner, I think, in Denver. Um, and we talked about all the amazing things and then quickly became friends and colleagues. Um, so that's kind of a cool triple connection. Absolutely. And I think that's about, you know, you connect people through your network and it's a a big part of how we kind of get that, uh, I don't know, in our case, girl posse of people who are a resource to each other and want to see each other succeed and, and, and help each other solve problems whenever we can. And Ellie, I've always really admired your work. And I remember this was something we talked about at that dinner, your work on conflict resolution and just the things that can come up that we all try to avoid. And we not only try, we succeed even when we shouldn't. We avoid the heck out of those things until often they kind of blow up on us. And I think that's really what our podcast today focuses on is, you know, notice it early if there are problems in the supervisory relationship and then resolve them. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. Um, so this uh, podcast kind of has to do with the chapter around identifying and addressing issues that might arise in the supervisory relationship, no matter where they arise from. And Each of the chapters has a quote, and we read that quote um, for each of the podcasts. So our quote today is um, by Lavi Ajayi, and the quote is, avoidance has never been a great tactic in solving any problem. For most situations in life, not addressing what's going on only makes matters worse. So we think that's a good lead in to this topic. Um, and maybe that's exactly where we'll start. Why, why is it important for us to acknowledge, talk about explicitly train trainees and supervisees about our predilection to avoid difficult situations when we know that's only going to make them worse? You know, I think uh, it's one of those things, once you begin to explore an area, you brew on it, and it becomes, you know, the thing you focus on, and you notice everywhere. And um, for me, with conflict management, I've I've definitely noticed that this is uh, a part of also a cultural myth. We have this idea that conflict is atypical, or rising conflict is bad, but actually conflict is more than typical. Siblings have conflicts, partners have conflicts. It's not having conflict that at all says there's something wrong. Um, I actually learned recently, it's truly absence of conflict that 
you know, is something that should be a red flag. There might be imbalance of power. Um, conflict itself sets the occasion for learning. But in our history, that learning comes with a little bit of emotional uh, distress. And it's only human to avoid anything that makes us sweat, makes us, you know, uh, tremble a little bit. We have to work through a difficult conversation. And it only makes sense that we try to avoid those feelings. Uh, but it, that absolutely does not uh, lend to better outcomes because the more we wait, the bigger the conflict becomes and more difficult it becomes. And I love that reminder that, you know, a conflict-free relationship is not the goal. That's not what we're striving for, right? Like if you have a completely, now that you may have a relationship where the conflicts are minimal, the conflicts are not very heated because you both have pretty good skills. Maybe there's a good power balance as you mentioned, Ellie. Um, so, you know, when we talk about conflict, you've got like the, you know, geez, Linda, you interrupted me and I still have a point kind of conflict versus the, wow, I'm going to puke because I have this really difficult conversation I need to have with somebody. Um, but I love the idea that like, if, if you're in a relationship and it's completely conflict free, like that's sort of like, what's going on? Like that should be the concern. Well, and there is that natural power imbalance that, uh, that exists in supervisory relationships. And we talk a lot in the book about how to try to minimize that, how to basically at least welcome that input, welcome that feedback and have it be bi-directional. But it's still always going to be the case that ultimately the supervisor has that oversight and responsibility and um, that that can introduce some issues into the relationship or exacerbate even just not a good match. And I, I think one of the things we felt like when we were writing the book is we wanted to be honest of like, all right, here's all this great stuff that you can do to really be a fantastic supervisor. But still, even if you do all of that stuff, it could go wrong. Something's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like if you supervise a hundred people and problems only arise with one or two, you're kind of crushing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're not a good match for, uh, for everyone. Mm. I also love that in the book, you uh, address the different topographies of what that can look like, because I definitely think the imbalance in power between a supervisor and supervisee may mean that if there is any value differences, any perspective differences, that a supervisee may feel less inclined to state that, less inclined to bring it to your attention immediately. But you are going to see some of these other indicators you provided, such as withdrawing or not providing as much information. And I think that being on the lookout for and accepting that there's we're not going to always be on the same page and that's okay to set the occasion for those conversations, I think is really the key. You know, we can look at our supervisees overt behavior uh, or lack of behavior, even being some of the indicators, and, but we have access to our covert behavior 
And I think um, that can be a good indicator too that something's not quite right, that you're not feeling great about the interactions with the supervisee. And um, maybe the supervisee isn't even noticing that. Probably they are, but you know, we've all, we've also got to self-reflect and kind of think about our own behavior. Am I? If there's one meeting to cancel this week, am I hoping it's that one? You know, like that says something if we bother to listen to it. Um, and we, you know, being open with yourself and honest about that. And like, that's likely to only worsen unless I think about what the issue is and whether it's something that needs to be addressed or not. Uh, absolutely. And I think until you tacked it, you're, you're behaving sort of, um, in a way that is impacted by it, but you don't realize it. You're not controlling it. You're not able to make good choices. And even if the other person can't tact it, they're still behaving in response to the way you are behaving. Um, and I think Linda, you talk about looking for smoke, which I love. It's like, look for the smaller nuanced things that where the repairs will be so much easier than if you let something fester and that you have to sort of be actively engaged in that looking. And it doesn't mean you're a worry board. It doesn't mean you're looking for problems. It just means you're constantly you know, sort of tending to the relationship in this purposeful way where you are, you know, we say look for smoke, but you should also be looking for all the awesome things that you can celebrate, but we're most likely to look away from the smoke. So I think that's why uh, it's important to, to, you know, really call that out. Um, and I wonder, Ellie, what are some of the things maybe that you do or that you coach or mentor others to do to to be present and mindful and reflective and really actively cultivate a continued check-in on the health of the relationship. Yeah, I think that, that that's an excellent point. I, one thing that I have begun to do, these are all, you know, when I go back in my history of the, as a supervisor, there are so many things I've done wrong and I continue <laughs> to learn over time, you know, by no means have I always done these, you know, so there are mentees out there who are like, whoa, you know, and, and that's just because, you know, Same. you're constantly learning, you know, and yes. I, uh, I, I definitely have recognized that I need to call it out. I used to, uh, feel exactly those covert feelings that Linda was bringing up, you know, hey, I noticed you are not speaking as much during group discussions. I noticed when you bring the agenda items to me during the supervision meeting, it's much more brief now, we get to business, you're no longer sharing any information outside of that. And I used to wait for the issue to rise or for the person to tell me something because I was like, maybe it's me, maybe they're not having a good day. There were all these self-doubts I had as to why I may be detecting that. And I had to gain the language literally to be able to say, you know, I noticed that during your agenda items, when you're telling me things, you're no longer telling me about some of those extracurricular activities or your other activities. I've noticed that you canceled a few meetings with me in the past. You hadn't canceled as many as frequently. Am I reading into it or is something going on for you? And so I have, I've become much more comfortable going, maybe I'm reading into it. Tell me if that's what I'm doing. Otherwise, let's open the conversation. Um, 
and that either one of those answers is okay. I, I think that we you don't often don't ask that question when we don't want to know if I, it's not just that you're reading into it. And so you have to, but but you're right. I think there's a certain level of um, maturity or or even confidence that if you find out that is the answer you're going to be able to handle it and you're going to have the will and interest to say, okay, well, let's talk about what happened. It's not going to crush my soul to hear that I messed up. You kind of get a little more used to, yeah, I've messed up a lot. I've been doing this a long time (laughs) and I might even mess up the same way I messed up before. And I'll still have the caring and the will to try to fix it. And the only way to get there is to ask that question. But I, I, all of us, Tyra and I, and seems like every one of our guests have talked about we're, you know, I, I wish every, every supervisee I'd ever had, had the now version of me rather than the one they had, (laughs) even if they thought it was pretty good. Um, I know so much more now. And part of what has changed is kind of my confidence in my ability to face that I messed up or that someone else is just having some circumstances in their life and that I'll be able to problem solve around that. You know, the, the moment of realization came for me, um, mid supervisory career. And I was sort of, I was reflecting over the fact that I thought something wasn't going well with a trainee and that, you know, I worried like there, is this going on? And, but maybe they were perceiving this thing, but, but maybe I did something, but maybe whatever. And I kind of was having this conversation in my head and then I stopped and I was like, well, you know what, dummy? The only way you're going to know is if you ask, that's the only way you're going to know, because you could try to behave in different ways based on the 5 million different scenarios that you're telling yourself in your head, but there's only one way you're going to know which the right function matched response is. And that's if you open your stupid mouth and say something, and you're probably going to say it wrong and that's okay. And I did. And it turns out in fact, that the thing that was happening wasn't even one of the 5 million things I had in my head. It was like the 5 million and one that I wasn't even smart enough to think about. And it was totally fixable, easy, addressable. And after that, That's what I always say to myself when I'm thinking about things like, well, if the data I need is with someone else, I need to get that data from that other person. And then I focus not on what could the data be? And I focus on how can I get the data in a respectful, compassionate, you know, considerate way. And P.S. the data might be Tyra, you're a jerk and you did something wrong. And that's okay too. Well, until you be less of a jerk. So that's part of it. (laughs) Not that you're a jerk at all. I do think we, we tend to, it's almost like we fall into that attribution error of I'm noticing this and I'm afraid it's about me or even I'm blaming it's about them. And it might be absolutely none of those. And there might be a 
perfectly viable reason, particularly for change. So it's one thing if there's never been that level of comfort. Another thing altogether, if it's there's been a level of comfort or there's been a level of productivity and timeliness and progress, and that changes. And so that notion of you know, you're only going to know your circumstances, but that person might have circumstances that have nothing to do with you that are affecting them. And mostly what they need from you is to know that those circumstances exist and they need a little help and tolerance right now, Mm -hmm. or they need a couple of extra prompts or or what have you. And I I think that notion of the scope of it, is it just this person? Is it all of my people? Tyra always says, guess what the common denominator is here. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, you know, that's certainly true, but very often it could be going well with, you know, the vast majority of the people that you supervise. And it feels like, man, I just can't get a handle on this you examine your own behavior, it's also possible that this person is having perhaps some mental health or wellness issues or a family member with unusual pressures, or I don't know about y'all, but I was dirt poor in grad school. And you know, the, when you're really worried about finances, like it, it can just, it can influence so many things in ways that you don't realize I'm noticing something, but I don't know what I'm noticing Mm -hmm. and thinking about that scope. Is this just with me? Is this with everyone? Is this just with them? Mm -hmm. Um, And is this new or a change? Ellie, you mentioned that notion of like, you used to talk about these things and have more details and, you know, we used our whole allotted time together and it doesn't feel that way anymore. Change can really be an indicator that just something's off and it doesn't have to be you or them or the way that either of you have behaved. It might be that, but it could be these other things that are just associated with life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, you know, Tara mentioned earlier that there was this moment of aha in her, in her career. And I think my aha moment that really made conflict resolution completely makes sense to me as to why we need to train differently and think of supervision some in, in different ways uh, was when I was receiving training through the university for mentoring uh, individuals who typically would not select higher education. So they're coming from um, backgrounds uh, either in socioeconomic status or cultural ethnic histories that they would not typically think of this as a career for themselves, particularly when I'm doing some of the work in technology. And it was just this brilliant discussion about how we go through life thinking of our intent. And we are pretty sure our intent is what we're putting out there. What people see is is our intent. But we we fail to really understand that the impact of behavior is really that receiver's history, that their lens on the world is their history. We may have no clue that the impact of our behavior was complete mismatch to our intent. So we, you know, and I think that that completely changed the way I saw 
brought that approach to a student, it was no longer about my intent. I'm solid on my intent. I do know how much I care about my commitments and what I want for my students. It was the realization that that may not at all be how it's impacting them. Um, and, and vice versa, that they might not at all recognize that alternative things going on for them is beginning to impact them in a manner that they're no longer seeking help, conversing about things with me. So it's, it's really, I think, changed the way I look at the, uh, the, the discussion for me. Absolutely. Well, you know, let's say we notice it. And let's say we need to start that conversation. And hopefully we noticed it early. Um, there are well-established ways to approach these conversations. And it, it, I think sometimes people assume, oh, that person is just, it's easy for them to talk about it, to what have you, rather than that maybe we've built a skill set over time um, that, that includes components that anyone could build. I'm always a little chagrined when I hear someone say, oh, well, I'm just avoidant. I, do, I don't do those conversations well. And I always want to say, well, right now, yes, but you don't have to view that as the way it's always got to be. If you see that it could be important to be able to be more direct, more you know, compassionate or even kind, more curious and more calm during these conversations, there are things you can do to actually build that skill set. And I know you've done work in this and you even offer workshops and trainings in this. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that if you don't mind sharing with us. Me too, me too. <laughs> of course. Um, I, um, I have, and I think that uh, there are two main components to any conflict management um, workshop. And uh, I was fortunate in that Chelsea Carter was a student of mine at the time that my interest in conflict resolution peaked because um, she came from a family where she had worked with, you know, her father was in human resources and she had a lot of interest. So she came into uh, this project with uh, a lot of experience. And as life usually does, we happened to at the time that we picked up this project, pick up a collaborator in Department of Special Education who was doing these large scale conflict resolution trainings for principals and school personnel. So together, what we realized is if we go across the literature, we can pretty much identify these two main skills that we need to build. And I would honestly say that none of us have it. I, I, I don't know anyone who, who comes with it. Uh, it's rare to have in your repertoire. It is absolutely something to work on. Um, and I'm definitely learning that sometimes I'm better at it with some individuals. There are others uh, with whom, for whatever history, for whatever things that they sort of evoke, I have a harder time with it. But I uh, think that the two main components are to, to kind of learn to identify if it is your bad, to be okay with just throwing it down and going, it sounds like I've hurt you. It sounds like I've, I've taken actions that even though they're not my intent, they've resulted in some difficulties and I want to empathically apologize. And learning to empathically apologize is itself a skill. Uh, many of us have heard apologies where we're like, yeah, I hear you, but 
not really. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the first things we learned when we were doing the workshop was, oh, we need to teach empathic apologies that, you know, that that itself is a, as a skill. Uh, and then the second is a concept that I've been introduced to in clinical psychology, but I've come to really understand even better now taking the behavioral perspective of it, and that's active listening. It's completely letting go of your own history, letting go of any of your own judgment, your memory of the situation, thinking you trust your eyes. Nope, nope, this is what happened. I remember this is what happened. Letting go of all of it and hearing from someone else their view of the world and, and really being able to hear that from them. Uh, before responding. And, and those seem to be the two key, uh, really the two key components of being able to manage conflict well. I think those are fantastic. And uh, similarly, um, hollow apologies, I think often actually do more harm than good. They, it now gives you one more thing to be upset with that person about. <laughs> Um, and I also think that notion of active listening is a fantastic skill for anyone to develop, not just in conflict resolution, but in everything that they do. Listen for information, listen to gain information rather than to wait until you can tell your other thing. But that is hard to do, particularly when the temperature's high in the room. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. And I think along the same lines, listen from the position that that other person's point of view is reasonable to them. It might not be reasonable to you, but it's reasonable to them. They're a human. They've made it this far in life. They clearly have some skills. So for whatever reason, they came to this conclusion. Inclusion, um, and they deserve for you to make the space, as you said to Ellie, non-judgmentally let go of your judgment. And that's part of compassion, right? Like two components of compassion that I think are so important are non-judgment and being willing to sit in some discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I love that you brought that into there um, as well. And, and I just want to say before I forget, I love that you tacted that even if you become good, generally speaking, at engaging in these behaviors, good meaning, you know, fluent and generally you have an okay outcome. Um, There may be instances where you're not, and it may be some stimulus properties that that other person has or something in your learning history, because I certainly have experienced that too, where, you know, I think, I think I do pretty well. And then all of a sudden I'm not in this situation and um, I have to really take a moment to reflect and go back to the skills that are super fluent for me normally. But remember that there are strategies that I can be implementing and I just have to talk to myself to be more present. So I appreciate that you brought that up. I think it is so true that our, our skill sets are under stimulus control and it may be under relatively broad stimulus control, but at some point you're going to encounter that situation where you don't get the skill generalization or the interfering emotion states Mm -hmm. or interfering behavior are at such strength from your learning history with either that person or someone who behaves like the people that you've had that learning history with that, you know, you, Hey, 
behavior gets evoked, right? And we wish it was the other ones, but it wasn't. And, and I think, you know, we have to kind of acknowledge if you're human, then your behavior is a function of your history and your current circumstances and catch it as quickly as you can. And even to be able to say, I'm not in a great space to continue this conversation right now. If you notice that it's not going as well as it could, even if nothing else goes your way, that could be your saving grace. And it, in order to do that, you kind of have to notice like, okay, um, all my little rules and rule governance are gone. This is hardcore contingency shaped and I need to get a little distance from this in order to really be able to do something that matches what I want to be able to do. The intent that I have as you, um, as you talk about it. Um, so, you know, If you're going to be anyone interacting with anyone else, you should expect there to be some conversations that require preparation. One of the things that I love about the crucial conversations model um, is, which there is a book published on this, and we've even talked about it in some of our other podcasts, I think, but it's the notion that if you are feeling anxious, worried, a little bit of tummy reactivity, whatever it is, that's a good indicator to you that something big is coming up and, or even that you're already in it. And if you can do anything to plan for it. And I think there are lots of times when if you're noticing early and you're deciding, I think there's something there, I'm going to initiate this. You have every opportunity in the world to plan for how am I going to say this in a way that is open and welcoming and conveys that whatever your answer is, I'm here to hear it um, and that you are you appreciate that their perspective is valuable. There are also certain phrases that you know, it would be better if none of us had in our repertoire and histories, but we do. And recognizing, all right, what are the things that I might say that are going to blow this up no matter what, no matter what your perspective is. If I say, yeah, but Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going down the wrong path to monitor for, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think coming up with the, you know, thinking to yourself, what will I say? How will I say it also saves you from the first sort of things that you would come up with. For example, if a supervisee is not coming to meetings or is saying less, I'm I'm more prone to tacting that as, hey, you seem to be dodging me, which comes with, you know, judgment. Um, And if I uh, give myself a few minutes, I can now describe their behavior instead of my, uh, you know, my judgment of it, really. But that is the more common way I would typically address it. So I think that that's uh, very, very important. 
Um, I uh, do think that it's important that we don't fool ourselves though into thinking that I just need more time to think about things. I've also sometimes talked with supervisors who are like, I'm thinking about how to address it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's been a week. And by now, you know, you're, you're, now you're avoiding. Yes. So I think it's, it's good to sort of be aware that yes, prepare, uh, but do not fool yourself into thinking that you're preparing you're, you, if you're taking long. You, if you want to address it as, as quickly as you possibly can, can, but have given yourself time to, to come up with the right words for sure. I love that. And, and I'm thinking back to two instances where I tried to prepare and I just nothing, I wasn't going to come up with the right words. Like I wasn't going to find the right way and the conversation still had to happen. And, um, uh, the recommendation from a mentor who wasn't a behavior analyst, um, was just, just start the conversation and say, you have to have this conversation and you're nervous about it and you're sorry, and you might stumble over your words, but you know, it's really important to have this conversation. Um, and it, you know, it still sucked and I didn't feel in good control, but at least the conversation got started. And once there, we were engaging in some behavior around the topic, I, I had something I could shape. I could shape my own behavior because I was a listener to my own verbal behavior as well. And I could shape their behavior. Um, so I, I love that idea. Like, yeah, great. You want to go in prepared as best you can, but sometimes you might be facing something either because of your learning history or just because this thing is so wackadoodle and new, you've never, like, I've never come across this before. I don't know how to address it. Sometimes you just got to jump in the water and say like, geez, this is going to be weird and I'm sorry, but I value you and I know you value me and we just have to talk about this. Yeah, I love that. I love what you just said too, because I do think relaying that we're going to have this conversation I, I, um, I don't feel as prepared for it, but I'm doing it because I value you really opens the conversation well. Um, I also think, I don't know if you feel this way, but I think my history was that I always kind of remembered conflict to come in, I open it and then it goes, and then it blows up on me, right? And the blow up part is what you remember. And I think it's because sometimes we're not giving enough time and space for the de-escalation and for the ending of it to really remain as a part of our memory of those conversations. And it's important that we are giving ourselves the time because if we're doing it right, even if it is not a very emotional conversation, there's some emotion that comes with uh, any value differences, any change or differences that we're about to discuss, there's discomfort. Uh, but it's okay because there's the de-escalation we're looking for after. It's not that you can dodge the discomfort. The discomfort will be there. It's a part. It's gonna be there. It's part of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things we talk about in the book, and actually in the original article that this chapter was based on is that sometimes there are these core deficits that the supervisee has that are making lots of little problems show up. And it's, you know, kind of, it's kind of like the hot mess of like, the things aren't very high quality, and they're late, and they're not done. And though, you know, and not well, well, and you're just like, ah, <laughs> you know, like, oh, and you have to kind of 
start to piece together, is there one of these core skills that's touching a whole lot of their repertoires or a whole lot of our interactions and that the difficult conversation is about, I have to talk to you about the fact that you are not as organized and you're not managing yourself the way that you need to, to really succeed as a professional. And it's going to be the end of you from a stress and an opportunities perspective. If you don't get up on time and get to things on time and give yourself time to prepare and not come in looking wild and disheveled and, oh, I got to get it together. Like, there's just no way that you, your, your clients are going to be able to be comfortable with that experience. And I'm not, and it has to change, you know, like that too can be a hard conversation or even how about this one? I think the issue is that there are certain things about your social behavior that can be really <laughs> off-putting. Like you can hear my tone of voice, like that's not a funsies, yeah. you know? And yet sometimes that's the issue. And you're seeing this person struggle in several different areas as a result of it. Um, for just from either of you, what are your thoughts on that? Except uh, not it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that you're you're addressing those difficult conversations that we're in a place to have with our with our supervisees, and I I think uh, I'm honestly privileged. I feel in a position of absolute privilege to be able to hold those conversations because. Um, you know, it means that I am able to provide support in something that could be totally pivotal for the individual. And it is a, a, absolutely difficult as a conversation because also it's usually quite ingrained and pervasive across different things for them, right? So it's not exactly like you can say, hey, we need to work on some of these social demeanors that can really be off-putting and make people uh, not listen to the content of what you're saying. Um, it's difficult for anyone to hear that. So we have to think about how to, how to deliver that in a caring, meaningful way, but also how to really have some solutions that are tangible and doable. So we don't dump this like, hey, you know, you, you may not be so likable. Um, and then we leave them. <laughs> that's really too bad for you. Yeah, no. that's hard. <laughs> but I love you. Okay. <laughs> Well, uh, and I do I, think sometimes we have people that are very excited and interested in the scientific aspects of our field, and they may or may not have the kinds of socially savvy responses that are particularly going to be necessary. Well, that may be necessary in their peer relationships, but also in their therapeutic relationships and talking about the fact that you have to either be really committed to making this change and building these skills, or this might not be the right professional path for you. I think that's a hard conversation to have. Um, but if in fact the circumstances are such 
that you really are in that position, if you avoid it, you leave someone investing time, effort, money, years into something without a real understanding of how important it's going to be to be able to, let's say, be really organized or be empathetic and, and really effective as a listener. Um, you know, I was just going to add that, um, sometimes in those situations where it, where it does appear that there's a core deficit related, I will kind of ask the individual, is this the first time you're sort of hearing about this? Am I the first person that's talking to you about this? Or have you ever noticed people reacting in X, Y, Z way? Because it can be hard to hear those things. And if there is a history that that person has had, that will be helpful as we move forward. Um, because then it's not just a, I'm picking on you kind of thing, right? Um, and, and look, we're behavior analysts. We can figure this out together. Um, and I also think it's important with those sort of core deficits to as best we can explore any kind of cultural implications. It may be that it has been present for a while and it may be because, you know, it's a part of one or many intersecting cultures that that person has, which is amazing and I wanna honor. But as you said, Linda, let's also explore, do you need to add some other skills to your repertoire and learn how to discriminate when you might need to behave in XYZ way for XYZ outcome, right? It's all about what's the function, what's the outcome that you want, pick the right responses to get that thing. Yeah. Well, I think we all hope that every supervisory relationship goes well. And detecting it early, exploring a plan, developing a plan, kind of talking openly and honestly about it. For example, if it is organization, time management, that kind of stuff, there are resources out there and you can give people tasks and supports. You know, there are Del Carnegie courses out there for the social skills and you can absolutely you know, give people the option to work on this and even hold them accountable to do so. But sometimes um, you might not be able to fix it. And sometimes what you might not be able to fix is the mismatch. That is the supervisee in, in there, how they see the world and is not a great match for you and how you see the world. And that doesn't mean that they shouldn't have ongoing supervision, but it might mean you're not the right supervisor for them. And that's hard, but it's something that in a very small percentage of circumstances could actually be the right solution. What's never the right solution is I'm not going to be your supervisor anymore. This is, you know, kind of the rude and crude breakup. We, we have that responsibility to, to not damage on the way out and to try to transition that supervision and oversight in a way that is as 
careful as if we were transitioning a client's services. 100%. Thank you for saying that, Linda. Yeah. So Tyra, what are some of your thoughts on how, if it happens in that rare instance, some of the things that you might do to make sure that it ends as well as it can end? Um, I think just expressing that, you know, your goal is for them to be successful. And if that isn't with you, that's okay for whatever reason. Um, and that you still want them to be successful. You want to support them. If, if you have the opportunity to connect them with other supervisors that you think will be a good match, then I think that's a fantastic thing to do. I think offer to, to talk to them if, if I can support you in how you might go about interviewing some other possible supervisors. I think not playing hot potato and just saying we're done. Um, to your point, Linda, we have very clear expectations and requirements for how we would appropriate discharge or transition a client. And it, that is the same thing with a trainee or a supervisee. And so it shouldn't be as of today, this is our last meeting. It should be like, I, I get it. Things aren't the way we want them to be between us, but I will continue to supervise you. I will continue to provide support until we identify someone like you don't want to get in the way of them being able to count their hours that they're accruing, those sorts of things. So you want to find a way to be a support, not a barrier, even if it means you got to put your ego aside and just say, I, I think I'm not the right person, but I'm going to do everything I can to set you up for success. Um, those are some of my thoughts. How about you, Ellie? Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I think that, you know, recognizing that you're not the right match for, for the individual uh, is key. I, I don't know about you, but I find it easier if I've sort of uh, noticed it and I begin to address things that we can do together, but I've mentioned it in the past. So it's not new that, you know, this is not working. They can kind of tell because I'm sort of repeating this, you know, I'm not feeling like I'm setting the right environment for you. Uh, I don't feel that you're you're optimally learning in my in in my supervision, and uh, so. But you know, when it comes to that place of let's find someone else, or have you considered someone else? I find that it's not a surprise, and I've been lucky in that they they come to me with you know it's no surprise we're not the right match. I found this other person. What do you think? And those conversations are uh, easier and I'm always happy to help and support. The, the truth is that I think the toughest ones for me are when I don't think the person will be a good supervisee with anyone. Yes. That, um, that you know, and I'm <laughs> like, we need to work on you. And I can't tell someone else to supervise you because some of these things need to, to occur before you can really become a, a good supervisee to, to anyone. I would love to hear uh, how you both uh, have dealt with that one, because that's the tough one for me, when the individual may just not be taking accountability or any responsibility for repeated error or, or potentially even lying. Um, there's evidence yeah. of just this constant, you know, mismatch. Uh, well, and it's not just mismatch, it's some misbehavior in in terms of even if it's not a direct violation of the ethics code it's about not fully accepting responsibility mm -hmm. or behaving with integrity or kind of that 
real commitment to I'm going to get better at this rather than just get the number of hours. Mm -hmm. And I feel very similar to you in that those are hard. And, but that is, that's an important conversation because it's not about passing the trash. Oh, hot potato, not my problem. This is going to be a problem for clients. This is going to be a problem for the field. And particularly when I see someone being a little loosey goosey with the rules or their judgment, or just like not seeing that they're, when you're saying to them, I'm worried about this behavior. It, it, this is, if it keeps going on, it's going to be unethical. And they're like, why are you worried about this? Or why this shouldn't be such an issue? Or they're pushed back consistently with feedback. You know, you have a person who is likely to not be on a trajectory of continual learning and growth and where they are now is not sufficient. To me, that's when I think about, you know, I'm not going to be your supervisor anymore and I'll sign off on whatever, you know, the hours up till now. But what you need to know is that I also don't feel comfortable endorsing you to another supervisor. And here's why. If these things were to not change, I wouldn't be comfortable with you being in this field. I wouldn't be comfortable with you being independently responsible for the care of vulnerable people. And that worries me and it worries me for you and it worries me for future clients. And this, I know this is hard to hear, but I can't not say that this is a huge barrier to what I see as you having a path forward and and that's such a hard conversation. It really is. To have. Um, it, but it that you just gave is. a lovely yeah. script for. So listen, yeah. you should replay that, write it down and have it in your back pocket. Cause Linda, you just crushed that. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Lord. And I'll tell you what, even if you do that, well, you come away from it feeling kind of crushed, mm-hmm. you know, it's sometimes the goal of the conversation is the least bad <laughs> experience that that people can have and the best that you can do. Um, fortunately, the majority of the conversations don't go that way. And Ellie, I love what you mentioned about if you really mentioned it before multiple times, then it's not a surprise. It doesn't feel like some unexpected hammer. You, so it's It's if you get to the point where the relationship might need to end or that conversation has to be hard, everything that you've done every other step of the way that you talk about in your book and that we talk about in our book, all of that pays forward. Mm -hmm. All of that really is what makes it easy and or easier. And so it's one of those things where a lot of times your primary solutions for when it gets tough is all the groundwork you've been laying before. It, it really is. I mean, I, I love that you call, you know, you called it by centralizing everything around the relationship because it isn't a singular sample of behavior. It is many samples. And that's what uh, we are depending on in, in, in our relationships. So I absolutely agree. 
Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to get to spend time with you again. And really to talk about something I know is um, an interest for all of us that many other people are kind of like, ooh, (laughs) okay, yes, I'll hear about that. And so thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom for us on this episode of our podcast. And hopefully we're going to get to do more good stuff together in the future. Yeah, I I, I don't doubt it. I deeply appreciate being here. And I love always hearing all the different ways that you both address things. I'm continuously learning from you. So thank you for having me. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. Very uh, excited for folks to get to hear this information. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Um, Thanks, everybody. Bye. Please join us for another episode of The Lift.